0: Welcome to Paradis, a broadcast dedicated to helping Christians develop a biblical worldview, preparing us to think scripturally and soundly about our world today. I'm your host, Brian Nixon. Joining me on today's broadcast is Dr. Joseph Holden, author, pastor, and president of Veritas International University, and Luke Betzner, pastor, author, and director of institutional effectiveness at Veritas International University gentlemen welcome
1: it's good to be with you brian and luke glad to be back on paratus
2: grateful to be part of the the group doing this very exciting
1: well
0: throughout this semester our focus has been on apologetics we've used dr holden's book living loud as our springboard on our last episode we answered the question what about evolution addressing various aspects of the topic if you missed the episode we encourage you to check it out This week, we're jumping into our next question. What about other worldviews? Due to the depth of the subject, this question will encompass two dedicated podcasts. Our goal with both episodes will be to compare the Christian worldview to other prominent worldviews. So to begin, Joe, what exactly is a worldview and why is it important Christians understand the differing worldviews?
1: Well, a worldview is how we make sense of the world. It's how we interpret the data of reality. Some call it a grid or a framework or even lenses through which we make sense of the empirical data. And since data and life experience and the things that we see, touch, taste, understand they don't come with instruction manuals to give us the ability to all be on the same page that is provided by your worldview some people call a worldview a set of glasses through which we interpret reality it's a grid or a framework and they're very important indeed and there's over 8 billion people on the planet today and everybody has a worldview if somebody says they don't have a worldview well That's their worldview of non-world views. And so the question isn't necessarily, do you have one? The bigger question is, do you have the right one? And so Mm -hmm. when we come to worldviews, it's very, very important that we see them is trying to help us make sense of reality. And in so doing, it becomes the integrative center of one's personality It's how we understand things. And people come to all kinds of different conclusions looking at the same set of facts. Your worldview helps you come to a conclusion when looking at those facts. For example, an atheist might look at the creation of the world and see that as an anomaly. He's a naturalist. He would not see the miraculous or the supernatural involved in the creation of the world, whereas the Christian or the theist would look at the world and see it as supernatural. It was created by God out of nothing. How can two different worldviews, atheism and theism, come to radically different conclusions? It's because they're looking at the same set of facts, but it's their worldview that provides the interpretation of those facts.
0: Mm, That's great clarification. Perfect. Thanks for that, Joe. Well, because there are several worldviews we need to cover over the next two episodes, I, I thought on this first episode we could do a bird's eye view of the worldviews, allowing our listeners to get a general grasp of them, and and I believe there's seven in all covered in your your book, and we may we may throw in some alternatives as well, but then in our next broadcast we'll go into depth into each worldview weighing them in light of the Christian faith. So with that kind of as our game plan, let's start with the first um, worldview, Luke. Give our listeners a general
2: understanding of theism. What is theism? Sure thing, Brian. So the word itself, of course, some may recognize it as a part of what they might hear more often, which is atheism. And of course the A reverses That understanding. So, theism, it assumes the existence of a god, but not just any god. And effectively, it is an infinite and a personal god. And these become very important distinctions as one begins to move through the different worldviews that may or may not be on the same spectrum. So, one of the folks who I think made this really clear in the titles of his book. There is uh, There it was a trilogy that was written back in the, the 60s and 70s by a philosopher by the name of Francis Schaeffer. And just the titles of his books, I think the first one was called Escape from Reason. And the second one is The God Who Is There. Just the way that that's phrased is really the foundation of the fact we assume in theism that God exists. But then the second section of that same work says he is there and he is not silent. It sort of rounds it out where, yes, God exists, but he exists as an infinite being, but also as a personal being who has made himself known to us. The biggest aspect of this is theism understands that the same God that created the world and beyond can inject himself into the environment that he created and does. And he acts supernaturally, both in the creation of the world and in the existence and maintenance of the world, as well as its denizens. Uh, The three big religions that we're aware of that would hold to this theistic view are known globally Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. So good, so good. And I, I appreciate the fact,
0: Luke, that you, you did bring up Francis Schaefer. Of course, he was a a great Christian thinker. So thank you for that. So let's move on to our second worldview. Again, the bird's eye big overview of it. And and Joe, as Americans, we hear a lot about this second worldview because a lot of our founding fathers prescribed To this understanding of life. So what
1: is deism? Well, deism is something that, as you said, was present even within the founding of America. Uh, Benjamin uh, Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, uh, they had, you know, in that height of deism during the Enlightenment period and even a bit before that, They had this belief that god created the world and then let the world run on its own it's almost like somebody winding up a clock and then letting the clock tick away to make it simple to understand deism is like theism but minus the miracles they don't Mm. believe in the virgin birth or the incarnation Uh, they don't believe that miracles or the supernatural is happening in the world today God's providence is certainly present, but God stands away detached from the world and allows the world to continue to unwind without the supernatural. And in so doing, Thomas Jefferson even put together a Jefferson Bible that reflected the principles of deism, which he cut out all the miracles and ended the Bible with a period after Jesus was buried in the tomb. There was no resurrection, no virgin birth, nothing in the miraculous can be left in there. So, deism was also the worldview that kicked off much of the biblical criticism. Because of its rejection of miracles in the world, they had to read the Bible and dismiss the miracles that they came across in Scripture. They had to either make it a legend or myth, or just as Jefferson did, cut them out altogether. And so the principles of deism may be alive and well in certain belief systems, especially naturalistic higher criticism of the Bible. It doesn't really have a major foothold or uh, imprint as far as a major worldview today. Mm. Though we would say still in some sectors, particularly,
0: quote unquote, in in intellectual sectors it still has remnants there's still people who believe in a god someone someone created someone god it started but he's not really that involved and so it, it, it as a as a formal system of thought it's not around but wouldn't you think joe that in in broad you know sectors of society a lot of people still think that
1: yes absolutely in fact many of the liberal persuasion of Biblical theologians have adopted many of these principles, such as the Jesus Seminar. They would dismiss the miracles and have their own criteria for justifying these different narrative uh, episodes in Scripture and so forth. And people carry around some of these principles almost like an heirloom or part of a a cobbled-together worldview and they would look at the world as purely naturalists. I mean, even today, you know, some scientists that call themselves Christian, but they have a naturalistic bent, will reject the miracles, but accept God. And unfortunately, it kind of defaults back into the what we call deism. Yeah, well, thanks for
0: that, Joe. Well, let's move on to our next prominent worldview, and Luke, we'll go back to you. What exactly is finite godism? That's a thats a pretty full mouthful there. What What is that? Unpack it for us. Sure thing.
2: So some may have come across this as titled as theistic finitism or finitism. And in the intellectual circles, it could be called either. But it is very similar to what it sounds. It's that there is a God. They don't deny that. But because they seem to be reacting against the concept of theodicy, or what we would call the problem of evil, they have gone ahead and taken away some of the power of God. So he exists as the creator of the world, but he's sort of almost like the absent-minded professor where the world has now gotten away from him, and the consequences of the world he has created have become too large For him to be intimately involved in and too complex for him to be able to provide a satisfying solution Um, some have written books about this to try to defend this idea you know that god's there but he's imperfect and as a result of that we need to be able to forgive him for his issues just like we do ourselves Most recently, a rabbi by the name of Harold Kushner wrote a book that probably a lot of people know because it was written in the last 40 years here, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. As I recall, this rabbi had lost his son and not understanding how to reconcile, quote, how God could let that happen and still be the God he claims to be, he began to defend this ideal that God's there but he can't quite keep hold on everything isn't quite aware of everything and therefore does not have the responsibility that other frameworks put upon him to be both infinite personal and perfectly good mm-hmm. so they effectively reduce that in in most cases it seems to try to soften the edges of what would be said under the idea of theodicy or the problem of evil H.G. Wells actually embraced this, and what it does, it it effectively separates the idea of God from the God who's in the Bible. And so it's a God, but it's certainly not the one that the Bible itself articulates.
0: So good, and and thank you for that kind of modern connection, And, and you're right, many of our listeners may be aware or familiar with that book. So let's go on to the next one, Joe. And again, this one is very, very prominent. It it, 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 it probably rivals the three monotheistic religions that um, Luke spelled out a little bit earlier in its popularity, but that is the worldview of atheism. What exactly is atheism, Joe? And um, why should we know about it?
1: Well, atheism tells you what it is by looking at the word "atheism." A means no or not. It's an alpha negative. And then theism means God. So it's the belief that no God ever existed in the past or will exist in the future. There is nothing but matter in motion. The universe is all there is. Now, we can probably attribute the rise of atheism in the modern world due to the Enlightenment period When scientific inquiry was rising to its height, people were looking to what we call natural theology or looking to the cosmos, to to the world, to understand the world through the telescope, the microscope, and they felt that everything could be explained through natural laws through principles of motion, through all kinds of uh, different uh, theories and laws that were rising and being discovered during this time. In fact, back in the 17th century, you had the father of modern science, uh, Francis Bacon, write a book called Novum Organum. That simply means in Latin, the new logic, And the new logic there was basically it had to pass the bar of empirical visual science and testability in a laboratory to be considered uh, truth. And this truth now has to be passing the bar of science. So people naturally, as the successes of science came forward, they were jettisoning a lot of the Christian belief or the reading of the Bible, and then atheism really took hold within that scientific endeavor. And so atheism, in the modern day, you have uh, the late Christopher Hitchens, uh, you have uh, Richard Dawkins, and then uh, classically Ayn Rand, the Death of God movement with Al Kaiser, even Friedrich Nietzsche had the Myth of God movement, uh, mm-hmm. classical atheism. Even Sigmund Freud; these are all familiar names to us. But it's the belief that the world is all there is. Uh, it's it's been here in matter in motion, and that we shouldn't look to the supernatural or anything outside of our empirical world that we can see to explain the way the world really is.
0: Yeah, that's so good, Joe. And, and I know the popular incantations of this um they they uh, categorize themselves I believe in a book called The Four Horsemen, of course alluding to Revelation, but they were Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris and Daniel Dennett. Mm-hmm. And um it, it's interesting that they'll they'll use biblical allusions of course to try to to proclaim um, atheism, but thanks for that overview. Well, let's move to our next one then. Luke, what about pantheism? What exactly is pantheism?
2: Well, it really seems to be the polar opposite of atheism. In the atheistic worldview, of course, there is no God, and some have moved further with a new atheism, saying it's just a disbelief in any God so that they can try to escape some of the the things that follow their denials and affirmations that happen simultaneously. Pantheism goes the other direction. While it maintains that the universe is strictly material, everything in the universe is God. God is the universe itself. You'll, you'll hear these things sort of inadvertently being stated by people who are just caught up in current pop culture, where they say, well, the universe is speaking to me, or... You know, Mother Earth and all all of these ideas that there's this, there is deity, but it's a materialistic deity. Um, They, Every aspect of the universe has sort of fallen from its remembrance of what it was to be godlike or deistic. And so this is tied with enlightenment styled thinking. Hence the idea of Buddhism, enlightenment, where by being one with the universe, one begins to ascend into this godlike structure. And pantheism has this emphasis on the imminent presence of God, in that it is something that's all around you all the time, as opposed to like a deist idea, which is God's there, but he's super distant. And he's a personal God. So you might recognize some of these things with, like, Hinduism, Buddhism, as mentioned, Christian science, with their their teaching about Thetanism, that a person can become a god or a godlike figure by remembering from whence they've fallen through a series of trainings and things like that. And I'm going to go out on a little bit of a limb here and say there are overtones of this in Mormonism as well, when they say, well, what God is, um, man may become, right? And what man is, God once was, because they, they remove this idea of a difference between the creator and the created. And as a result of that, it leaves things pretty wide open for a materialistic understanding of God that excludes nearly supernatural aspects. And yet, at the same time, requires a significant amount of improvement on the part of those who follow it to sort of step into the perfection that the universe presents.
0: Mm, great, great summary there. Thanks for that, Luke. Well, Joe, like pantheism, there's another word that I think people will get confused over, so I'm hoping you could help our listeners distinguish between pantheism and panentheism. So there's pantheism that Luke just covered, and now
1: let's talk about panentheism.
0: What exactly is that?
1: Well, this gives uh, people heartburn, Uh, Brian. This has been causing confusion for some time. But pantheism that Luke just discussed is all is God, and God is all, whereas panentheism is all in God— and God in all. So notice the difference there. Panentheism says that God is in the world, just like your mind is in your brain, or your soul is in your body. It has two distinct poles to panentheism. God is like a giant organism, and one pole is called his spirit pole, or his infinite or eternal pole, and that is spirit. And then the other pole is his physical nature, which is the universe. So that's why some people call panentheism bipolar theism or dipolar theism, progressivism, or even organicism. And there's been a lot of adherence to this view since the turn of the 20th century. Uh, There was Alfred North Whitehead, uh, Schubert Ogden, Lewis Ford, Um, you had... Uh, Various people, even in the modern age, uh, such as Clark Pinnock and Gregory Boyd, who repackaged this process theism uh, into what we call open theism, that the open future remains open because God cannot know the future, because if he knew the future, that means people cannot be free, and it takes away freedom, they would argue, but um, that couldn't be farther from the truth. Um, actually, you have panentheism being an interesting environment because what they're trying to do is preserve God's relationship with humanity. And if God can change, that's his physical pole, that's finite, and God has an eternal and infinite pole, which is spiritual, that means that he can grow. He can learn, he can be creative, he can relate to humanity. So though uh, the adherence to panentheism may have a noble goal in mind by arguing for it, Uh, to preserve the relationship between God and man in that he can change, uh, he can lose things, he can forget, and he doesn't know the future exhaustively and so forth. That may be noble, but ultimately it makes God like a giant organism, much like a giant human being uh, with a soul and a body. Uh, He just knows more than we know. He doesn't know in a very different category or class as we know. Uh, so he's just greater than us, but he's not totally other than us, which is a problem.
0: Yeah, it was interesting. I was at a lecture. Oh, it's been a couple of years ago. Is by a prominent Franciscan. His name's Richard Rohr, and he was he was lecturing on St. Francis. And what surprised me in the lecture is that he candidly came out and said, "I'm a panentheist." and um, obviously we could congratulate him for being honest about that but as you 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 stated joe there there are some um what we would call both theological and biblical issues with that which we'll delve into next broadcast but let's cover our last um uh worldview here again the bird's eye view of it and so luke will will turn to you define
2: for us and tell us what paulie theism is. So as our listeners may be aware, we've taken the word theism and kept that sort of at the center of these worldviews. Poly being the last of the ones we're looking at just simply means many gods. Now, it's an interesting claim because these gods that they are assuming are largely finite gods. There does not seem to be a single supreme being but rather that there are a number of deities that are both what they would consider friendly and unfriendly, something similar to what we would say good or evil. It's based more on how they treat you. The idea of good and evil is pretty vague in polytheism, and it's more about sort of patronizing particular gods from whom you want a favor at the time. And sometimes they can trick you or they can help you or they can harm you. And, and so there's this gigantic incomprehensible world of individual finite gods in which people move and live. And they are constantly, you know, intermixing with one another. I think in Hinduism there's s- several million gods and this is not necessarily completely unfamiliar to the ancient world because the Egyptians and the Greeks also did this. Some people, you know, when they hear the word pantheon, you know, they may think of a few of the Greek gods, but there were quite a number of them. And the Romans and the Greeks largely believed in the same types of properties for particular gods, you know, Mars is the god of war. Athena is the god of wisdom. These types of things, and they had different names in those cultures, but they largely served the same purpose. The Egyptians were a little farther off the, the Roman and Greek side of things, where they had a whole different host of gods that they worshipped. Um, these gods largely are not detached or distant, but are supposedly very. Closely related to the people, and in their realms of authority, say for instance, a god of the sea. We would think Poseidon, right? Or um, you know the 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 All Father. You know, you'd have these types of ideas that come from culture where there's these assignments that are given. So that be the god of the sun, the god of the wind, the god of the sea, the god of love, truth, or compassion, or judgment, or destruction. And in these types of constructs, it's almost as if anyone who had ever perceived a particularly strong force in nature, like a volcano or an element like wind or fire, would attach to it some form of sacred power and then would designate it as a deity that had to be worshipped or cherished or uh, appeased, which is, of course, entirely different from the God that is predicated in Christianity, where he is the supreme being, he is not subdivided into a hundred million different attributes over which a particular deity reigns, but rather in himself contains all things, hence is an infinite being, not a finite being, and does not have a multiplicity of natures, but has a single unchanging nature.
0: Mm, that's, that's great. Marvelous. And, and, and again, those are just bird's eye views of these seven worldviews. And I'm reminding our listeners on our next episode, we will dig deeply into those and compare and contrast them to the Christian worldview. But Joe Luke, like our previous broadcast, we always end and encourage our listeners to dig deeply into the subject we're discussing by recommending books. So Joe, what
1: book or books do you recommend on worldviews? Well, there's many good books out there, but there's one in particular that I think could really reach the masses. It's titled, Worlds Apart, a Handbook on Worldviews. And if you get the second edition, it's the most updated edition. It was authored by William Watkins and excellent book. It goes through each one of the worldviews we discussed today. And it gives you the reasons why they are important, and it really unpacks in a very understandable way for the lay reader and for the scholar as well. It hits both worlds.
0: Perfect, Luke. What about you? Any any
2: book recommendations for our listeners? I think I would just stick with the first mention that I made regarding Francis Schaeffer, um, not necessarily as an index for everything that you would want to believe, but as a good coverage of a lot of the ideas that cause people to construct the worldviews that they have the way that they do. And of course, that's escape from reason, the God who is there, and he is there, and he is not silent. And I
0: I think I would add, you know, I know there are general introductions, but Norm Geisler's Christian Apologetics, he covers it. Uh, Winifred Cordon's Reasonable Faith is another great one. There's so many good books. And, and again, one of the things we want our listeners to do are to be readers because readers are leaders. And we wanna ensure that we can give answers to the hope that lies within us, to those people that do ask. So Joe, Luke, as normal, what a pleasure having you on.
1: Oh, great to be with you both. God bless you guys.
0: Been a blessing, take care. So join us next time as we answer the question, which worldview is correct and until then proclaim the gospel equip the saints and defend the faith